they also love their sport. They love what they do and they want to protect that. And you can only protect that by having a sustainable um, yes, that's true. Uh, yeah, amount of, of fish and sharks in the area. So they definitely care about the ocean. They definitely care about sharks. They definitely care about the ecosystem. They're just coming at it from a different vantage point. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. This is episode 217 and a modern Huntsman production. Now, I am joined this week by my good friend, Sarah Roberts, for a deep dive into a story that she wrote in Volume 9, Modern Huntsman. And you can read this story online right now by heading to modernhuntsman.com. So if you're fascinated by this conversation that we have now, head over there. I'll also stick the direct link to the story in the show notes. Um, and you can go and read the story that she's talking about in this podcast. It was a story which was presented by Vista Outdoor, and it tackles the controversial topic of shark angling, both in the UK and in Florida, the potential restrictions around certain shark fisheries, and how scientists have worked with fishermen to collect vital data for their conservation. But before we dive into that, a quick shout out to this week's top tier patrons, who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Dick Ekstromer, and Mark Zabrowski. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And if you have any suggestions at all for the show, just email me info at paceproductionsuk.com or you can find me on all the social platforms at Byron J. Pace. Sarah, welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast. The last time you and I chatted, I was sitting at your house and we did a podcast outside. I know, and it was sunny and warm, and now it's wet and miserable. (laughs) It is wet and miserable, but the leaves are turning, and that is a really beautiful time of year, and the rivers are full, and the salmon are running and jumping, so I... This time of year brings happiness to my heart. I was going to say, I see how you did that. You brought it all the way back round to fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Easily done, especially since I've been doing a bit of fishing the last few weeks. Um, now we're going to be talking about uh, something else aquatic. We're going to be talking about sharks on this episode, and particularly about the story that you wrote in Volume Nine, Modern Huntsman. But before we get to that, as uh, I mean, I'm sure that people will recognize your name uh, because you've been on the podcast. I think possibly as many times as whoever else is the other person who's been on a number of times, because you, you're you're a fairly frequent guest on the podcast which is awesome because i like hanging out with you and we always have great conversations um but give me the the sort of the two second rundown about what what it is that you do for people who maybe haven't heard the previous podcast yeah um it's i always struggle you always wanted two seconds and i always struggle to define it but essentially i guess um i communicate environmental issues and wildlife stories in various different forms so I write kids books I do events I also um, make content and I'm an eco-journalist does that work yeah that sounds great that's very very (laughs) concise and you've been doing a lot of stuff with your kids books recently tell me a bit of an update on that because that's uh, a new one has come out since you and I talked last you know there might even have been two new ones is it really it wow. might be. Uh, yeah, so we had, um, so I've got three out in the world now. So we've got um, Somebody Swallowed Stanley, Somebody Crunch Colin, and Somebody Woke Wilson, the Somebody series, as I like to call it. Love um, it. The, the latest one that came out, um, Wilson, I 
um yeah I'm really sort of still holding his hand he's quite new to the world so um he is a carbon atom um and it is explaining climate change and the concept of the carbon cycle to little people um so a really complicated subject made consumable by small humans yeah literally so yeah wilson is fast asleep um in the earth's crust and then he gets woken up sucked up for a big metal straw and spat out into the world and then just like stanley gets um chewed up and swallowed by lots of different creatures he gets sucked into various things um he ends up obviously in an oil refinery then in a car and then spoiler alert in a cow um until there's lots of wilson up in the air bashing around with lots of other carbon atoms um, and causing havoc with the weather. And then, you know, our saviour child comes along and starts planting trees and helps him get back to bed to go to sleep. So it is, it's kind of like the most basic version, I guess, Um, which is quite nice for adults too, because I think sometimes we tend to overcomplicate and make things sound really, really intimidating. And actually, when you break these topics down, it feels a little bit more solvable. Yeah, no, this is true. And what's I, 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 I'm so curious about what the reception is like when you go into schools and read bits of the book to the kids. I almost want to like sit at the back of the room one day. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to do a school up near you at some point. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, it's funny because like I think the way that I've designed these books is to teach them subliminally. So, I mean, they are, at the end of it, very, very familiar with the carbon cycle. And I've kind of, I like to think it's a bit of a Jedi mind trick. You know, I've instilled all of the the sort of notions behind climate change without them necessarily realizing that's what's happening. They're just thinking of poor old Wilson that's having a a dodgy time. And then, of course, I've snuck the word fart in there into this one. So um, (laughs) that always goes down a treat. Um, but yeah, they do kind of get it. And I, I do explain at the end that it's it's actually based on a true story. And although you can't see it, Wilson and his friends are up in the air right now, banging around into each other. Um, so what what kind of things can we do to help? And then that's how we talk about, you know, reducing um, the amount of carbon emissions by maybe cycling to school or walking to school or um, planting more trees or looking after nature. And yeah, I, it just feeds into the curriculum hopefully anyway she says um but i mean unfortunately there really isn't enough environmental um and and sustainability related topics on the national curriculum right now and i know i mean i work closely with eco schools so we're trying to um put out a bit more support there for teachers that are wanting to incorporate that in so hopefully wilson's useful <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Well, it, it looks like it's been very well received and I've been following it on the socials as you've been touring around the country speaking to, to kids at different schools. So well done. Well done on getting another book out into the world. I know. Well, the next the next one is a new series for older kids, which I think is way, way more exciting as well to you and I because it's uh, it's all about the world's wildest job. So, um, oh, yes. Yeah, that's I remember you telling me about this. Right now and a podcast alongside it. Um, that's going to be amazing. Spending my entire days thinking I, I might want to change career paths. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem when you talk to awesome people on podcasts, as I well know. You're like, I want to do that. Yeah. And talking about fun things... Just before we get into the, the main topic of this podcast, you are about to jump on a plane and go and see a very good friend of mine. 
Yes. Tell me what's 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 about to happen in your world because this is very exciting. Back to a continent that I love the most. I am off to Namibia. Yay! Um, yeah, I am. I'm gonna go and hopefully um, showcase some stories, some environmental issues, and um, some some poaching situations going on over there um, at Alex's place. Um, gutted you're not coming too. I, did I know try and if it had just been <laughs> if I hadn't also been getting on a plane like a day after you to the other side of the world, um, I would have excuses. I would have come for sure. I don't need much of an excuse to go to Namibia or anywhere on the continent of Africa. To be fair, yeah, I'm. I haven't been. I mean, I haven't been to Africa since way before lockdown. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Very much so. And I, yeah, like you say, I'm going to struggle wanting to come back. But of course, you know, I've got my dog. I have to come back now. Oh. I always have to dry tears from my eyes when I'm sitting on the runway. It's terrible. I normally <laughs> I normally fix it by when they when they when they come down the aisle and they're and they're handing out the drinks. I'm just like, that'll be three brandies, please. <laughs> that'll that'll fix my my exit depression of the continent. Oh well, I'm not going to think about that side yet. I still no, no, you you haven't even arrived yet. You got so much fun ahead of you. That's yeah. great. <laughs> so back to um, I guess it was six months ago, almost now, um, when we spoke about you doing a story for Volume Nine of Modern Huntsman. We bounced around a few ideas, mm. and, and eventually we came up with the one that went into print and. Uh, I have to say it's one of my favorite spreads like between the the images that we managed to find some archival some new ones that I shot with you um plus stuff that you'd um taken through two different stories on two different parts of the world uh the way that our designer pulled that together with a story that is very complicated and very deep and quite easily to quite easy to get lost and i think the way that that whole spread worked was was brilliant yeah um, took some gi- turns didn't it this story? it did yeah so <laughs> give us the give us the kind of uh the initial rundown of what happened when you and i sat down and discussed look this and you said to me this could be a really cool story can i run with it and i said that sounds awesome go sarah I think when we first sat down, I thought from the offset that it was going to be relatively simple. <laughs> How wrong I was. Um, yeah, no, I had this idea. I had um, spent a bit of time, like you say, in another continent, um, which I had spent some time out in Florida looking at um, the sort of crossover between shark fishing and shark science. Um, and all the controversy surrounding catch and release, um, land-based shark fishing of great hammerheads, um, which at that time when I went out, I think it was about 2017 when I went out and met Hannah from American Shark Conservancy and spent a fair amount of time sleeping out on the beach with these different fishermen to learn about their sport, but also, um, you know, what that could potentially offer in terms of of knowledge and data to the science world too. Um, So that was sort of like a really interesting story. I'd later accidentally stumbled across a parallel story in Cornwall in the UK, um, during which I'd ended up on a boat with um, some salty dog Cornish fishermen um, who were also catch and release shark fishing 
for all these species I never realised were in such um, abundance around the UK. I think quite a few of these ones, especially poor beagles and threshers, are sort of put in the brackets of myth and legend in the yeah. UK waters. We don't really think about sharks in UK waters. Not really. Not. And I mean, poor beagles are related to great whites, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, the thing is, I, I'd always sort of, we always use that quote, especially when I go into schools, you know, there's over like 30, 40 different species of shark around the UK, but you say it and you're like, you're never going to see any of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, like uh, I, I did my dissertation on UK sharks, but it was cat sharks, you know, or lesser spotted dogfish, whatever you want to call them, but like really sort of small, um, not particularly uh intimidating sharks and then I you know jetted off all the way to the Bahamas to go and work at a shark lab because I just assumed that that was the next nearest place to get decent hands-on work with sharks um and 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 enter into that field um had I realized uh, what was on our own doorstep but to be honest the science world I think is only really waking up to what we have now and and so when I went out it was before lockdown um and and it was these guys these particular shark fishermen were mostly um fishing for blue sharks um which i think since lockdown people have become a lot more aware that we have this abundance of blue sharks um traveling past our coast especially because i guess with everyone holidaying in the uk we now have a shark diving industry that's that's you it's know, kind of kind crazy, of growing. isn't it? Yeah, it's mad. Yeah. It's mad. Um, but yeah, people can go and snorkel and dive with blue sharks now off the UK. And that is, you know, that's They're beautiful. A, they're amazing. But this has all come off the back of fishermen who have shared their knowledge, um, you know, and, and also s- sort of swiveled in terms of how they make their money. Um, and the same exact thing happened in other places around the world in Florida too, which is why they've got so much shark diving over there is because of fishermen. Um, and fishing boats who, who sort of shared their knowledge and, and that's how divers have found these different spots um, but yeah what happened was I spent this time I very nearly looked into opening a UK shark lab briefly um, but then um, I had too many other things going on and intricacies in that world I um, got a phone call after lockdown from the very same fisherman who um, were concerned because an application had been made to the JNCC, um, which was essentially an application to ban poor beagle catch and release shark fishing, which for them and for some some individuals sort of signalled that it might be the start of the end for their sport, um, which was a big concern because of this mass amount of, of money, knowledge, data, everything that was within there. Um, that would be lost. Um, so that's the story that you and I first sat down and discussed, right? Yeah, yeah. So this this idea that um, this uh, what is a recreational activity, but linked, and a lot of people don't realize, and I guess we can we can dig into that, but linked to a lot of scientific research was going to be completely shut down, but it wasn't very clear exactly why. Yeah. Um, and that was the thing that intrigued me. It's like this idea of um, banning something because uh, for, re- for reasons which um, are not necessarily scientific, but they're just 
morally ob- objectionable by whoever it is that's put this motion forward, which seemed to be the case from the, the, the initial discussion that we had. It wasn't very clear why this had been put forward and, mm. and, and indeed what the implications would be. Yeah, um, because I think it's, it's, it's so hard to know. Like, and that we had this challenge when we when we were working on this story, is like what do, what part of the story do you tell first to try and help people understand this? But I think maybe maybe what will help create the groundwork for this is if we talk about or you talk about um, how the fishermen have worked with scientists and how that knowledge has helped gain this this increased understanding in the last decade of sharks around the coast of the UK? Because it's, it seems like an unlikely alliance. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, and the thing is, it is a, it's a parallel. It's such a parallel to the situation that was going on in Florida too. Um, you seem to have this headbutt between shark fishermen, shark scientists, and then, you know, shark lovers. Um, and everybody seems to think that they know best within that head. But, um, and, and what's happened is people have tread on each other's toes. Um, communication barriers have come up. And, um, yeah, forward momentum has not been quite so fast in certain places. Um, and I think... In the UK, in recent times, there has been, um, in different parts of the UK especially, um, quite a lot more collaboration happening between scientists and shark fishermen. And I think it's the shark fishermen that have sort of accepted, you know, there is a big problem in terms of um, shark populations around the world. There's a lot of threats to our oceans. Um, we love our sport. We love to fish. We do definitely, admittedly, get a thrill from this. But you know, we also want to conserve our sport, and we want to conserve these species, and we do respect these creatures. Um, so rather than doing it for the fun of it, we'd like to also have a point to it, um, which is incredibly useful for science and <laughs> incredibly useful for scientists because. As a scientist, you have very little opportunity to get out in the field. You have very little opportunity um, to actually spend time finding the different um, ecosystems, the different sharks, habitats. Um, And I think being able to collaborate with people that have this huge wealth of knowledge, proven experience, you know, proven um, catch rates, and and not just that they they have anecdotal um, evidence for changes. Um, it, it really really speeds up the game in terms of of science and actually finding out important data. But we sort of realised um, through doing this that it was more than just um, you know anecdotal evidence or or a wealth of knowledge that they'd kept. A lot of these fishermen um, and especially. I guess we're probably going to talk more about it, but um, especially the um, British um, Shark Angling Club, um, they've actually got written data and huge amounts of it um, from from the catches that they've had because they've recorded all of their information, um, which in itself is this amazing database of <laughs> information that that sets a baseline, I guess, of what these sharks are doing around the UK. 
Um, and when you take into account things like climate change, overfishing, you know, um, changes in terms of currents and, and predator and prey movements, it's amazing that you can have this comparison there. So, yeah, fishermen have this huge potential to really, really support the science world and in turn um, conservation. Um, but of course, it's still quite tricky because the communication barriers um, are still up, shall we say, in some places and between some parties. So, so tell me about actually being on the boat and the shark fishing in itself, because I've, I don't know, I have this slightly funny feeling about shark fishing. I fish and it comes down to the this complexity of catch and release in my mind. Because I I understand why it's important, and I understand why it's people important to keep like people on rivers fishing for salmon because it's it's money and funds, and it it helps us do the good work of conservation to try and save safeguard Atlantic salmon. I've had this discussion on the podcast before, and if people weren't on the river, you wouldn't have the people who care partaking in it and caring about the river systems. But you are catching something just to like tug it around on the end of your line to go and put it back because most rivers uh, up here are catch and release for salmon. And I catch and release small trout that I'm are ones that I'm not going to eat all the time. But the idea of catching a big shark um, and putting it through all that stress and then releasing it um, feels strange to me. And I'm not sure how, I, I still don't quite know how I feel about it, but I've never done it. I've never stood on a boat. You have. Yeah. So tell me what that experience is like and what the discussions with the fishermen were like. I mean, it is trophy hunting, isn't it, in a way? It's just taking a different turn in that what you are they, do they to... What do they care about? Is it, is it, I mean, is it, are they doing it for measurements and rankings or how, how does it work? Yeah, yeah, I guess it is. Um, you know, you've got personal best. They have, like, trophies they give out. Some people just come on just to catch that one shark to say they've done it. Um, I think they, there's avid people that get the boat regularly, hire it out with the mates. You know, part of it also is they just really enjoy being out on the water. I get um, that, totally. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, you know, and there's definitely um, a camaraderie that comes with catching a big predator. Um, I mean, I'm sure you felt that when you've been out um, yeah. in the field as well. Yeah. Um, I... So I, I guess I have caught quite a few sharks in my day. Maybe not as many as some, but it's quite normal for me, I suppose, because especially um, being out in somewhere like Bimini Shark Lab, most of our research to to get any sort of research on a migratory species, you had to catch them, right? You had to you had to tag them, you had to measure them, you had to take DNA isotopes. Um, so we were catching and handling sharks literally on the daily um, of all different sizes from like your, your sort of four meter tiger sharks right down to your, your little, like, I don't know, 30 centimeter lemon sharks. Um, and I even can, there's an adrenaline rush that you get, right? Because yeah. you are fighting something that is strong and you're, there takes a little bit of skill to get that into the boat efficiently. So, and, and you've got to have the right gear and you've got to know where to, there's a lot of waiting, you know, you've got to know where to, to rig your bait and what bait to use and to chum. Everything's 
um, got to be quite concise in in order to to catch these big predators. They're not dopey, right? Um, and I think for the fishermen, they probably just as much would enjoy catching a smaller species, you know, like the mackerel or taupe or um, maybe even going out salmon fishing. But it, for them, I think the excitement and the adrenaline that you get from catching a big predator uh, is probably partly to do with the fact that they do fight more. It does take a bit more effort to get them in. There is a bit more risk involved if you have to handle something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I can't deny it, I'm pretty sure there's there's got to be something that you feel with your ego, you know, if you're able to catch this big predator and outsmart it. You know, but, but that said, like that's not to take away from the fact that I think that they have their own love and respect for these creatures too. It's just the way they appreciate it is at the end of the line up close after they've caught it. And, um, you know, the way a diver appreciates it is different again, like swimming past freely. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, I don't think it's that dissimilar to the salmon situation. Um, and, I think what people automatically assume is because it's a bigger fish and it's fought harder that they're all going to die. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I, even from Hannah's study, I think that kind of, that study in itself, nobody had really looked at the catch and release, great hammerhead, shark fishing from the beach before. Everyone had so this, a lot of opinions about it. This is Florida. This Florida is the comparative. Study, yeah. yeah. So everybody had a lot of opinions about it. Um, especially like shark divers and, you know, shark avid shark lovers, shall we say, all had their opinion, especially because there have been sharks that have washed up on the beach with hooks in the mouth. Um so undoubtedly there are accidents that happen. But when Hannah did her study, which was the first one really looking at um, that that particular, um, uh, what would you call it? The um, quote. There's n- there's no quota um, that's set. There's nobody's ever done a sort of count of those sharks, shall we say? There's been no population census um, for those sharks that are passing off that shoreline to know if any quota um, is accurate. Um, and she did her study by basically popping a tag on as the fishermen were doing their thing, you know, measuring them, getting the photo. She ran in, st- stuck a sat tag on that pops off after two weeks. But all it does was tell you whether that shark survives um, or not. So if the shark was dormant after it's gone back in the water, the tag pops off and you know that there's been a mortality. Um, so I think there was only two sharks, maybe even one one or two in the whole um two or three seasons that she she was out there doing it um that actually died um the rest of them actually did okay and and that wouldn't be the perception would it no and And i i didn't even have that perception um when i went out because i was thinking you know what was amazing in terms of the cornish shark fishermen in comparison like the florida one you know that was very extreme um great hammerheads we try to avoid catching them um in bimini Uh, you would try and tag them while they were free swimming because they struggle on the line and because they have a higher mortality rate um if you catch them on a long line or deep line or anything like that 
Um, you know, they can't buccal pump. Um, they can't push water over their gills if they're not swimming. Um, so, like, describe think- the fishing <laughs> for them because it it seemed a bit wild. And in fact, um, I think I can probably say on the podcast that you're actually working on a series of of short films that are going to add to both what you're hearing in this podcast, uh, but also what was written in Volume Nine as well. Like, yeah, describe what that's like to be on on the on the beachfront there with the fishermen. Uh, cold. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Florida is a lot colder than I imagine it would be in January. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're going to be sharing some of the footage that we took while we were out there. So um, I think one of the sharks that we caught, the time they actually, I mean, there's so much sleeping out on the beach and just shivering and just chatting away to these guys. <laughs> Sounds terrible. <laughs> well, compared to the actual catch rate, I mean, I don't know what I expected, but like it w- was a long time before they ever actually landed this particular shark species, you know, um, they don't catch many at all for the amount of time they spend out there. Um, you know, we went out maybe for like seven nights before they caught one. Um, (laughs) were they they picking up other species? Yeah. Like you catch the odd bull shark, maybe like a a lemon or even a, a nurse. But for the most part, like, they're looking for great hammerheads um, and you know they're there because you can see them on the drone, but they are really elusive. They're really hard to catch. Um, and then they do put up, the reason they go for great hammerheads is because they fight so much. And that's why, you know, when we were at Shark Lab, you try not to catch them because the mortality rate is higher. And these these are on long lines. So I was thinking, you know, this is, you're catching them, you're pulling them into shore, you have to lug them right up to where the water's lapping on the beach to be able to do, you know, take the hook out and do your measurements and get the picture or get whatever they need. And then you put them back in. I was thinking, you know, it's probably, you know, even I was like, probably not going to be that great, but I'm not sure. Um, but actually, yeah, the, the mortality rate was fairly low, all things considered. Um so that was quite a surprise. And then in comparison, you had Cornwall and the boats that they were fishing with um, are actually, I would say, kitted up as well, if not better than some of the shark research boats that I've been on really? in the past. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they're fitted with a back door so you can get the shark in and out there. Um, they try not to take the sharks on board unless they have to. Um they're very, very efficient, to be honest, at like grabbing them. It's such a, I think because it's a lot of the same people that get into this hobby and go out in groups again and again and again. And this was the same in Florida. They become quite an efficient team. you know. And so I think maybe that's why they like the shark side of it. It's not the same as when you go out and you catch a salmon and maybe you're relying on one guy to help you net it, but it's, you know, it's mostly I didn't, your I didn't realize it was such a, yeah, such well, a community activity. you've got like sort of three or four of activity. them. Yeah. yeah, literally like trying to, you know, grab hold of. So you need get, your mates to do it You with. can't do it on your own. You can't. And that's the same in the science world too. Like you, and the bond that you have with somebody when they're holding the back end of the shark or you're holding the front end. And if one of you lets go, obviously it's not going to be ideal. I think the risk side of it, you you, you definitely form a much stronger bond with the people that you are with on that boat. 
um, than anything else because there is a real danger involved. So maybe it speaks towards the kind of primal instincts that we have um, from from the days when you used to go out, you know, and catch and hunt and get your food that way. The risk is probably half the attraction. Well, I know that's what got me into shark research in the first place. So, yeah. So of the guys that you were with, uh, just to take it back to off the coast of England um, mm-hmm. and, you know, down by Cornwall and these places, we, we, should, we probably in a second need to go back and talk about how it was historically because we found or you found some amazing photographs at one of the museums that we were allowed to use and publish in the article. But um, <clears throat> did what was the impression that you got from the guys that were on the boat? about their relationship with the sharks. I mean, could you see that there was a a care there? I mean, it seems hard to, particularly for people who don't fish or um, this is a a world that's totally new to them. The idea that there would be a care there seems very odd when Hmm. they've just hauled it into the boat. No, I think there definitely is. I mean, there's a spectrum on, on everything, right? And I'm sure there's probably the odd one or two that maybe don't care so much. But for the most part, yeah, there's kind of a revelry in this shark. Like, they they really, like, love them. It's, it's a strange concept, but they definitely do, you know, and they want to see them and they get excited about it. Um, you know, it's just a different way of interacting with a with an animal or a creature. It's, it's not necessarily the best for the animal, but... Um, but those interactions are very, very special and treasured by them. I mean, we had a call with um, Ian, who was one of the guys featured in the article, um, who who has avidly collected every single um, Mako shark capture. Like he has collated records of every Mako ever ever caught in the UK. Um, and, and I think he, he manages to go way back when, almost like 100 years. And um, he told us a story of um, how one of the people that he found out about um, and he contacted was actually on his deathbed at the time. He had no idea he'd rung this guy and he was trying to get hold of him just to get like first-hand account of of what had happened, how big the shark had been, you know, what were the conditions, like anything they could remember, um, and and yeah, was got in touch with the wife at the time who said, you know, it's not a good time, this is happening. He was obviously horrendously apologetic, hung up, expected like that to be the end of that. Felt a bit sad for the guy. Got a phone call the same evening from the guy himself who'd perked right back up and was. Mm-hmm super excited to share that story and relive that encounter because he'd carried it with him his entire life and the thought of it being useful to help protect sharks because essentially all of this information that ian's collated he's given over um for science studies um so i think that you know it's a different it's a different kind of relationship but there's definitely um an interest in the creature a respect for them and a love a different kind of love because yeah they you know they they also love their sport they love what they do and they want to protect that and you can only protect that by having a sustainable um yes it's true uh, yeah amount of of fish and sharks in the area so they definitely care about the ocean they definitely care about sharks they definitely care about the ecosystem they're just coming at it from a different vantage point 
a Mako, was it not a Mako that they used for the billboard for Jaws? Yeah, the shark. Te- yeah, they've the because they've got the crazy gnarly teeth. teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you told me that. I'm, I'm, I'm no, not, I'm not is, claiming that knowledge. Is. I think you told me. <laughs> Yeah. So um, to go back to the the controversy of this that, it, that was occurring in the UK, these fishermen that you were with had fished for poor beagles for decades. Yeah. Or, or maybe if they hadn't personally, but them and their predecessors had fished and they had this amazing uh, database of records and they also worked with scientists to tag poor beagles. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think the tagging had happened quite recently. That was a new addition in the last sort of few years. I mean, the fishermen have been very, very wary about collaborating with anybody because they have been burned in the past. And that is, you know, not to sort of pee anybody off, but... Um, we don't there has, mind. Well, you, the, there <laughs> have been egos, I think, both sides of the fence. And scientists in the past have have you know, shat where they eat. No, I mean, Well, they've come in with their opinions of what they think is right and wrong and hypotheses and, you know, and not listen necessarily to other vantage points and, and that stops people wanting to work with them. And yep. I think as we, as we learn from different people we interviewed now, like there, there's been a lot of effort trying to repair those those relationships and to build bridges and to be able to work with fishermen again because you know they don't want to lose their sport they don't have to work with anybody you know what they're doing is totally legal um they don't have to answer to anyone but I well, think, they don't have to unless legislation gets passed. yeah absolutely but I yeah. think uh, uh, the reality is at the moment you have got a lot of individuals amongst them that want to contribute. They want to um, help science. They want to learn more about their species because they do, like you say, they, they do kind of adore them in a different way. What was the phone call that you got when this um, proposal for a change in legislation was being put forward to the Joint Nature Committee? So I got a phone call um, from one of the guys on the UK Shark Angling Club Committee um, who obviously knew me because I'd been out with them. Um, At the time when we went out with them, we were trying, we filmed a a bit with them, which is some of the footage that we're going to share, but we were keen to potentially the collaborate, um, you know, make a TV documentary that's what we were filming for um and that's what we were a pitch that we were, we were putting together which um unfortunately it didn't come off you know it got it got shortlisted by discovery and then it, it just sort of like went into the abyss somewhere um it but they knew in the TV it world, does, doesn't it um but yeah. they you know these guys knew me um and they trusted me and they had had spoken in the past about worries of what would happen to their sport if um uh, conservationists or anybody that you know didn't necessarily um like what they were doing were to put in something along the lines of this and now it happened I think there was this big panic of like oh you know who's going to tell our side of the story who's you know we don't really have a voice in this um everyone's been a bit quiet and scared of how to use the voice for this because we don't want to stir the pot we don't want to say the wrong thing so I think they'd almost, yeah, they'd they'd come to me hoping that I could write an article on this or or just 
tell from my perspective because they knew um I guess that I'd worked with Hannah and my background in science and I could understand the value that they the well the potential value that their knowledge and their wealth of skills could be in the conservation world so um yeah I was I was just sort of approached by them you know can we put this can we do anything? Can you help us get our story out there? And so I came to you <laughs> first person. Yeah, and then we started to put of. this together. So they were worried that the, this would be a species of shark. So this was specifically about poor beagles. Yeah. That they would no longer be able to fish for. And, and I guess, there, would it be fair in saying that there was a concern that that would, might then in the future be a cascade of yeah. you know, which other species would be next that they weren't allowed to fish for? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, they have had um, incidents um, in the past where they've had um, sort of activists um, and conservation groups trying to stop them go out on the boats and trying to interfere in that side of it. Um, so I think this has always been a little bit of a worry. Um, you know, it is a controversial sport. And it's crazy because obviously this this sport was once absolutely celebrated. People from all around the UK used to travel in their masses I didn't, to come and marvel at I had no them. idea. Like I, when we pulled up that ar- those archival, the archival footage from the, um, was it the Maritime Museum? In yeah, Cornwall? National Maritime Museum yeah. in Plymouth. Yeah. They were so, I, I, sorry, in Plymouth. They were so helpful. I'm so grateful to them for the, the, the imagery that they gave us. But I had no idea. No, me it neither. It was like these massive contests, and they were killing a lot. Because uh, all the fishing that we've been talking about to this point has been catch and release yeah. for sharks. Back then, which is not even that far back, it's like the 60s, um, they were killing a lot of sharks. Yeah, yeah, thousands, thousands every year. Um, and it, like you say, it was it was all for yeah, competition and um, bravado. Um, but but also a lack of knowledge. They didn't realize they like harm. how old these sharks were. They didn't realize the implications of, of taking out all these big predators. They didn't realize that these were like dwindling populations. And like I said, the same thing has been echoed all around the world in every different country where there are sharks and fishermen. The same story has happened. Um, but it's so crazy to think it's happened in the UK. And so subtly, it's been buried so well that we don't, we never Most talk about know. it. We don't no. know. Yeah. Like if you looked at one of these pictures now, I automatically look at it and think, oh, that's probably, you know, like north carolina or florida or, and, <laughs> you know one of the most one of the amazing things and, and i say this because of that period of time it, it was even less common then than it is now is some of what it seems to be that some of the most successful um shark fishers were women yeah well the 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 largest was it the largest mako or the largest poor yeah. beagle yeah she yeah. that was that record was held by a lady yeah um which is it's just yeah, not something you imagine in the 60s, like 50s and 60s, like many Pat, women going shark fishing. I, no, Pat maybe Smith. Maybe I'm totally wrong, it, but I yeah, think. Pat Smith. And yeah. of course, now there's an entire database of information with her name. Yeah, I know. And it's quite ironic because obviously she was in the catch and kill era too. And now that database is. Um, it's for conservation isn't it it's the opposite yeah. but i'm sure this is the thing is i and and this is something ian um also said is i think a lot of these people had they had the education had they known at the time the implications of catch and kill 
um, probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> probably not, no. And and no. this is, you know, interestingly, I mean, for me, like I can I can look at it and just see parallels with how Bimini Shark Lab got set up. So obviously that has has um, published so many papers that have all been really interesting for um, shark conservation and shark protection and learning about um, all different elements of shark ecology. Um, but in the very first place, the origins of that lab, there's there's archive footage of Dr. Gruber and his day flying around um, in like a little sea seaplane in his helicopter and, you know, just jumping out and harpooning them from the sky. <laughs> like I can't even imagine how many sharks he killed before that lab was set up. Um, but it was on pure ignorance. People just didn't know, like, some of these large shark species take decades before they they get to a, an age where they can breed, um, mm. and and that's happened with with science and fishermen sharing their knowledge together. So, who actually put the um, the sort of petition forward to stop um, the 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 catch and release of poor beagles? And what was the premise of it? Why why did they want to stop it? What had happened? Well, I, I'm not sure if it's just the one party that did it, but I know we spoke to Shark Trust about this um, because they are um, had a part in it. Um, and so this was the interesting thing. I think when we started following this story, we really didn't – we'd heard mostly one perspective, really. Um, although I have a science background, I hadn't really studied many sharks in the UK Um for any length of time whatsoever so um we were only really coming at it from the fisherman's perspective and then um investigating it further um so when we spoke to shark trust it was really interesting because um we had kind of wondered if it had been an emotional knee-jerk reaction but the reality is um poor beagles are particularly vulnerable um it's not like the blue sharks uh which have like they they have lots and lots of young um mm. when when they breed and they breed fairly regularly and they you know get to that breeding status quite early the poor beagles are the exact opposite you know they are closely related to great whites they only have one or two young time and then that happens far apart and you know they they can take decades before they get to the stage where they can breed and and there's a lot of threats on poor beagles the particular reason um they were keen to to put a stop to it is because um there seems to be a lot of evidence that there's a poor beagle breeding ground um off the coast of um the uk um, in a particular area <laughs> where the shark fishermen may or may not be aware of that. They probably are. Um, based on their catches and what they get and the sizes of the different sharks that they catch. Um, and because we don't have any information right now um, on the survivability of catch and release with that particular species in this country, okay. um, I think they're erring on the side of caution. Okay, um, so this is a precautionary principle. We don't have enough information, so let's not do it anymore. That yeah, was the, the, that the seems premise. to be the case, yeah. Um, the argument against that is we don't have any information. Surely this is the exact time where we need to get information and maybe this yeah, is the okay. exact moment and a perfect opportunity if there is a breeding ground to locate it and conserve it. Um, 
so you've got two sides of the coin really um and then yeah and then the drama but, unfolds doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit so what so where did the where did the controversy start because what what i can see what, what what i hope is becoming apparent is that a rather than everybody getting in a room and working out how they can work collaboratively together um it's people shouting from opposite sides of a long corridor <laughs> yeah and uh and, and as a result everybody falls out and then nobody wants to help one another but really everybody loves sharks and everybody wants them to um for the, for the conservation of sharks to be successful but can't necessarily agree about working together absolutely um i think yeah it's very tricky i think well what we saw <laughs> when we when uh, as you well know um so i started investigating this story we'd arranged to go out on a boat and look at um the actual technique involved in the catch and release of poor beagles and like meet some of the people doing it. And all of a sudden everything got very, very hushed up. Um, and a lot of people didn't want to talk to us for some reason. Yeah. I still don't really understand why. You still don't. Yeah. We, I think it was mostly, it seemingly was mostly down to one or individual or one or two individuals that, um, felt that it's much better to sort of say nothing it comes back doesn't it down to that that old saying where it's you're you are the master of words unspoken but the slave to the ones that you've said and I think the fear of anybody possibly saying anything else that could pull the tiger's tail um was so great that they would rather not talk at all anymore um which was so very strange since we you know i'd i'd been approached to write this article and everyone was like yeah 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 we you know we were all go we wanted to tell our point of view to like oh no we best not say anything at all no we can't comment we can't comment and it and it, it was like doors slamming shut left right and center it wasn't even just the sharp fishermen that suddenly like panicked and backed off there was even an element of like a sort of coll collaborative group of sharp scientists and sharp fishermen that also panicked and shut the doors. And I think it's like, it's madness. It's absolute madness. For me, it's a time when everyone needs to be having the conversations more than ever, you know, what can you bring to the table? Well, what can you bring to the table? Why do we need to do this? Why shouldn't we do this? Um, but this is, you know, it's something that happens again and again and again and again, tiresomely in the conservation world, um, out of fear and then also out of, I think, an element of egos involved here and there, Probably, yeah. you know, and, and possessiveness over certain over areas knowledge and, data, and knowledge and power. That became and, apparent, oh, didn't it? Yes. So where did it all end up at the end of the day? Because this this petition had been filed which was that the poor beagle fishery should be shut down. The fishermen have this amazing archive of data. They obviously don't want their their fishery to be shut down because it's something that they enjoy doing, and there's an economic aspect of it as well. The scientists actually want the data that the fishermen have and the knowledge and the skills to be able to do the conservation stuff but some of the people involved in that world also want to shut down the fishery. So where did that leave everything? <laughs> At the moment, is, have I summarized that? Like, I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and not necessarily people within the science world that that want it shut down. You know, people 
that just love sharks, um, yeah. I I think are even can be even more passionate because they don't understand the need to tag or get data or any of that side of it. I think there there can be more people that are even less amenable in that scenario. Because um, there was something that did come out of um, your discussions with different people. Like Gonzo was one of them. Yeah. Um, amazing human being great like i'm actually trying to get on a shark dive with him at some point yes <laughs> um along with some other people that you you knew and have spoken to that were talking about the importance this is, these are scientists talking about the importance of maintaining relationships and collaborations with people who are out there all the time who are not scientists who are fishermen and that it, there was great synergies to be had there yeah i mean well we we looked around other areas of the british coast um, and Northern Ireland and, and Southern Ireland, there's interesting collaborations going on there. I think we spoke to Jenny, didn't we? Um, yeah. who, who had literally, after I interviewed her, went out and, and they, um, captured a big poor beagle, a female one, um, a huge one, a huge one, um, with the help of fishermen and got some really interesting that she was doing isotope studies and looking at, at the, um, populations around the coast i think there's evidence so much evidence and so much proof that these relationships not only are, are vital um but can be really really fruitful too for the better understanding of how to conserve these species um in terms of cornwall it's still in limbo <laughs> as far as i know um it's still very tight-lipped it's still very quiet everyone's sort of cautiously not saying anything or doing anything um because the uk's had so much bother uh in terms of who's <laughs> going to run the country slight, uh, we've had I a think, bit of turmoil the last yeah few months, i think that slowed down movement through parliament but i mean for me the overall thing the biggest takeaway was that cornwall was the first county in the in in Europe that became like the, the place for um, big big game fishing. It was the yeah, first like big game fishery in Europe. Yeah. It was the Mecca, you know, and Cornwall really led shark fishing. And this was at a time when that then ricocheted around the rest of the world. Um, and I think to, to, to realize just how many sharks have been landed in Cornwall over those decades and how much fishing has been done and how much knowledge has been gathered, it's an absolute travesty that we are not so much further ahead that in in that particular county and Devon, you know, too, like why are we not pioneering shark research in the whole of the UK coast? Why are, why are we so far behind? But I think, unfortunately, trust is such a, a key issue and it's been damaged um, at, to the point where people just don't even trust each other within their own communities as well to move things forward and it's hindering everything um, for sharks, for fishermen, for scientists, um, for the entire um, transfer of knowledge. It's uh, it's a story that I'm sure is replicated in m many species in many different parts of the world, um, and I've just uh, I'm just in the process of wrapping up a a story for the next volume of Modern Huntsman on commercial whaling, mm. um, specifically off the coast of Norway, and there's some similar parallels there with you know lack of trust and communication and. Um, <sighs> 
ultimately, at the end of the day, if people aren't prepared to talk to one another, you'll never find um, positive avenues to move forward. And that's what happened in, you know, the, what, the, what seems to have happened in this case with a very vulnerable species um, where there could be really incredible positive outcomes if, if, if the expertise of all of the different people came together. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, we're, we're in a situation where there is this protectiveness over data so that people don't want to share it, protectiveness over just knowledge that has been gained and passed on through, the, through generations, and to your point, um, an unfortunate lack of trust that the information that they give to scientists or conservation groups, that I'm talking about the fishermen, might be then used Again, to shut them. down the very yeah. thing that is the most important thing to them that enabled them to get the data in the first place. Yeah. And I don't think that um, any one of them, and you've already said this, uh, would do anything that would mean that they saw the last of the particular species of shark that they like to fish for. They want to see more of them because they want to keep on doing what, what they're doing. And if they could... Um, work collaboratively in a way that was going to proliferate the species. I, I can't see from the conversations and interviews that you did and putting together that story that that is not exactly what the shark fishermen would do. Yeah, I think it's the same across the board. Um, but it, of course, it's also the trust that if that means they have to stop fishing for a certain period of time to then be enabled to fish again or yeah. fish less or in different areas there's got to be that trust on all sides that they are then going to be allowed to when the population comes back um, and that's the challenge because that yeah. that story has happened a number of times with a number of species around the world where there's been a realization and acceptance often due to mismanagement that we have to stop harvesting or or culling or hunting or whatever the whatever the 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 metric was used or um for that species for a time so that they can do it again and it never opens up yeah and it, it, in, some, in some instances it hasn't opened up not because there isn't a harvestable surplus anymore it's just because um the pu the public feeling on it has changed since when it has stopped so, so I, I can understand that risk. Yeah. You know, I, well, I can understand the feeling of that risk for sure. I understand it. But then I also just very recently um, made a little teeny tiny mini, mini real documentaries for, um, uh, for Instagram um, during a time in Mallorca looking at marine protected areas. And one yeah. thing that came out of that is just how vital fishermen are for marine protected areas. You know, we all love the idea of having this absolute Eden where nothing gets caught and nothing, you know, and it flourishes naturally. But who on earth is policing that? Who, who are the eyes on it? Because scientists have such a limited amount of time they can spend out on the ocean. You know, it's maybe like, a, a few a few field days a week in comparison to fishermen who can be out there every single day. So I think in a way we're kind of cutting our nose off to spite our face if you were to stop fishermen, especially catch and release fishermen from ever continuing because they are the ones that are going to see if there is anything wrong and they're the most likely to want to, to report, you know, whether it's maybe we need to go down a more permitted system or something else but but these guys can be the absolute stewards that are needed and necessary 
um, at a time like this when our oceans, you know, are facing bigger threats than just necessarily catch and release fishing. Um, so, yeah, it's Find a bit of a travesty. people who want to protect the oceans and the species and the environment. And even if you take a different thing from it, We'll find a way to work together. I think that's the takeaway. Absolutely. Which you don't all have to necessarily be invested in it for the same reasons, but you are invested in it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Sarah, <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time to go over your story. Um, it was it was gr- absolute pleasure to work with you. It was my, one of my. It's actually my favorite sort of. I mean, you did the almost all of the heavy lifting, but I was bouncing idea. You were bouncing ideas off me. Um, the whole time, and I really enjoyed the process of uh, being being that sounding board while you were putting the piece together. Um, and I'm really. I mean, I needed your handhold on this one. <laughs> it was complicated. I definitely and, needed and, your handholds, and, and particularly, it, it particularly was, when was, everything shut down <laughs> and no one was speaking to you anymore. Yeah. I thought yeah. the story was over, but actually, our story was just beginning at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but um, I can't wait to show everybody the, uh, the 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 short films off the back of this, which will be coming out um, in the in the months after this podcast goes out. And I wish you the best mm-hmm. of luck over in Namibia. I'm very jealous that I'm not getting on a plane with you, uh, and I'll catch up with you when you get home. Thank you very much for having me once again. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>